0: Welcome to another podcast in conversation with, I'm Gary Robinson and we're in conversation with today, Kyle Smith. Kyle, hello to you. Hello. Welcome to the studio. Uh, And uh, a man who's quickly becoming my uh, partner in crime on this podcast, I'm delighted to say, is John Ross from Ogilvy Ross. Hello, John. Hello, Gary. Delighted to be back again. Very good. Uh, Kyle, I've got your biog uh, in in front of me and we'll go through it, not piece by piece, because it's, it's I've got to say, it's very impressive. Um, but just give me your background, because while you live in Scotland, that's clearly not a Scottish accent. So tell me tell me about your background. Where, where were you born and what's, what's your history?
1: Yeah, well, I guess I've got a bit of a confused accent here, so it's a bit of a mix of uh, American and in, in, Scottish here. <laughs> but I was originally born in the US. Uh, from Northern California. So my my dad's American, my mom's Scottish. So I actually moved back to Scotland when I was five and uh, grew up in the northeast of Scotland in a little place called Elgin. And uh, finished up my high school years in, in the U.S. and spent a year after high school working in the U.S and then came back to Scotland for university. So I've kind of spent most of my life going back and forth across the Atlantic. You live in a beautiful part of the world, and people who are listening to this podcast could be absolutely anywhere, but
0: you're living in a particularly you know, beautiful part of the world. How did you find living up in the Highlands and Elgin and now Fort William, isn't it? Yes, right, yep. yep. How, do you, how do you find it up there? Is it, is it a little bit too rural
1: for you, or do you just, do you just love it? Do you soak in the scenery every day? It's interesting. When we moved up to Fort William, it was in 2013, and I just finished working for a wind energy company in Madrid. So in a city where I had a city commute. And my wife was living in Glasgow at the time. And she was uh, kind of just about to start her trainee GP, uh, four-year process. And we had a lot of options to choose from in terms of where we wanted to go in Scotland. And neither of us had been to Fort William before. And we knew it was kind of considered the outdoor capital of the UK and we both enjoy our outdoor sports. So we thought, you know what, let's just, let's just go for it. Let's put it on the list and see if, it, see if she gets accepted for her, her training post up there. And uh, lo and behold, she was accepted and we ended up moving up there and got a little cottage next to a loch and just for sort of kind of uh, enjoying the, uh, I guess the the rural life for a while. And uh, I guess we made it, maybe one mistake was we we lived a bit too remote in our first move up there. We were about 17 miles outside Fort William in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we thought we were going to be able to have access to internet, but we didn't actually have internet at our house. And to get anywhere was a bit of a struggle. We had to get all our shopping in Fort William, take it back out 17 miles to our house and and uh, if you're going to go into Fort William for the day, you had to make sure you had everything you needed for that for that whole day. So no Wi-Fi. Actually... Like some
0: people might say that's a blessing. Yeah, in some ways it <laughs> was.
1: <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> bit a bit of a struggle if you kind of uh, work in the engineering or tech sector as well. So. But uh, we actually sold our house last year and now moved back into the, uh, into the village itself in Fort William. So a bit more connected, which is nice. You've painted a wonderful picture there, Kyle. You really have it. idyllic. And we'll talk more about why
0: you're here um, shortly. But what's, what's your relationship with John? John? How did you meet Kyle and why are we here? Just um, as, a, as a quick overview.
2: It, it was interesting to me. We, I was at an event in Glasgow uh, and it was a lunchtime sort of get together. And I sat down and said, Hello, I'm John. And Carl said, Hello, I'm Carl. I said, What do you do? He said, I'm doing a PhD and I'm going to row the Atlantic. <laughs> and I thought, Well, that's that's not the normal start to a conversation. And it was just really interesting, just sort of finding out about better... it. But it was a kind of one of these speed networking things where you sit and have one course chat to someone and then have to move. So we got about 10, 15 minutes of a bit of a chat. And I head off, and then I thought, well, actually, this is really interesting. I need to introduce him to Gary, and we need to get you in the studio and have a chat. Because it's completely bonkers. What he's gonna do. <laughs> well, maybe. It depends which, which side of the fence you're on. We've heard that before.
0: <laughs> um, so your, your, your CV is very impressive, Kyle, and... Um, uh, uh, graduate from the University of Edinburgh uh, in mechanical engineering uh, with renewable energy. Yeah. So, for the uninitiated, like
1: me, uh, in layman's terms, what, what are you qualified in? Yes, yeah, so I guess there was a, a core degree in, in mechanical engineering, which is looking at you know thermodynamics and the traditional engines and fossil fuel power stations, but it's also looking at the new uh, sources of, of power like wind energy, solar, hydro marine energy technology. So that was that was kind of my, my first degree. And then after that, I went on to work for the world's largest wind turbine manufacturer out in, in Denmark and Spain. And then when I moved up to Fort William, I, I got involved in uh, community energy projects up there, which is a big, big part of, uh, I guess, the Scottish government's energy policy now, which is trying to encourage communities to take a, a local ownership and stake stake, stake in uh, in commercial projects now. So I worked with a little community up in uh, Noidart in to help them kind of redevelop their hydro system and implement a little smart grid demand-side management system, which kind of helps them balance their, their loads, their heating loads and different appliances uh, with the availability of hydro from their, or power from their hydro station. And that was kind of my first introduction to electrical engineering and electrical systems. And I decided it's something I wanted to learn a bit more about. So that's when I decided to go back to academia and do a PhD in electrical engineering. We hear a lot about renewable energy. You know, depending, you know,
0: which site, which, which, you know, leader you're listening to, and we'll go on to that again. <laughs> um, but it has its people. People, people really love it, but then there's people that that view it with suspicion. Is that fair to say? Do you come across people who are who are avid fans of renewable energy, but some people that go, well, why actually, you know, why do we need this? And you know, that thing over there is a blot on the landscape.
1: Yeah, it's certainly uh, an area of uh, kind of hot debate at the moment between between lots of different uh, uh, organizations and and different kind of political parties as well. And I think it's kind of, you have the kind of, uh, I guess, the the future-driven kind of ambitious people that want to drive this kind of progressive change to a future uh, energy system that's clean and renewable. And then you have maybe the other people that might take a more, I guess, pessimistic or pragmatic approach saying, well, how can you get intermittent renewables to supply power to us all of the time? Um, and then when you start getting into that discussion, you have to really start looking at the technical aspects of renewable energy and what can be done to integrate uh, wind and solar, which is you know, it's inherently intermittent. You know, when the sun doesn't shine, you don't have power. When the wind doesn't blow, you don't have power. But there's ways to mix together this technology so that we can have a reliable power source. Stupid question number yeah. one coming up. I did warn you before it. we started no recording. <laughs> you know, you see a turbine yep. in the
0: water and it's going round, yep. is that purely driven by wind or is there some form of electricity going into that in order to, to make it go round? I've always thought this, and it's ridiculous,
2: isn't it? Well, no, but because I tell you, I've, we've had these conversations before about are they wind turbines or wind makers? <laughs>
1: And it's all just a conspiracy by the
2: oil industry.
0: (laughs) Well, it's just, and you think, well, it's not that windy. And how on earth is that thing spinning around at, you know, X amount of miles an hour? I don't know, ridiculous question, perhaps. And then when it's windy,
2: they don't move. Well, that's
1: the challenge. I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there about this this technology. And, uh, you know, I was in a kind of public consultation one, one time where a woman got up and said, you know, I don't want these wind turbines here because our village is already too windy. I don't want these fans up here producing more wind. And then we realize, well, actually we don't quite get the, the concept of wind turbines so the wind wind turbines do just capture the wind uh, and they produce electricity but uh, to make the, the generator work you do have to draw some power from the grid very very small portion of what the actual wind turbine generates um, so it is very much a, a net producer of, 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 uh, of energy of power why is scotland in such a because we hear about it a lot in the media so why
0: here in scotland are we in such a, a good position in order to produce renewable
1: energy yeah, well, in terms of just its location geographically, it's got a fantastic wind resource, one of the best wind resources in the world. Um, and so with that respect, we can actually produce some of the cheapest low-carbon energy um, anywhere in Europe. And uh, over the past five to ten years, the Scottish government has really prioritised uh, renewable energy, and specifically wind energy, just because it's the most cost-competitive renewable source that we have at the moment.
2: Gary, you you need to get out of the studio more if you don't know why it's windy. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know, it's windy all the time.
1: It
0: is, but but it, but but it, I'm sure the wind just doesn't cut off at the borders, you know. So does does England and Wales? Do they they do they share some of this fantastic? This is a very strange conversation. Do they do they do they share some of this
1: fantastic wind? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, certainly good locations in, in England and Wales at the moment, especially in, in northern Wales. Um, but it's some of the best prime locations for, for wind energy projects in, in England have already been been taken up. Um, and the best locations in, in the UK at the moment are actually the Outer Hebrides. Um, but the challenge there is actually the connection to the grid. So the subsea cable out to the, the Hebrides is constrained at the moment. You can't produce any more power or push power through that cable to get it to the main load centres like Glasgow and Dundee and Edinburgh. So that's what... Uh, I guess the next step at the moment is trying to work out how do we cost-effectively put a cable, subsea cable, to Hebrides and unlock this this wind energy.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do you, no, I'll ask that question in a second. So you've gone through the pros, some of the pros.
1: What are some of the cons of this? And it's a, it's a tough question for yeah. you, because you're obviously pro it. No, no, no. I, I think one of the biggest challenges is actually for the networks themselves, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this PhD, because I came from the other side where we were developing this great technology, or I thought it was great technology, and we were having some challenges integrating it into the power network. Um, the, the power system at the moment is set up for, to have big centralised power generators, fossil fuel power plants, nuclear power plants, that push power out from one centralised location out into the, rural area, into the rural areas. And it kind of works like you're... Uh, you know, blood supply system We have big arteries going out, kind of gradually going into to veins and and. Uh Capillaries, but what we're finding now is that renewable energy kind of happens in more rural areas, and it needs to feed power back up through the network into uh, the, the big load centers, and that can cause some challenges with the network. So that's one of the main challenges at the moment in terms of integrating renewables: is uh, how do we cost-effectively reconfigure the power network to accept more renewable generation onto the grid?
0: And while all this research is is going on, and you find you have that eureka moment, and you're able to solve that, are our our electricity energy bills are they going to keep? rising in order to fund this work or uh, when will we gradually see these bills going down or have we started to see them go down? I don't think I have but
1: no I think I think this is the, the challenge at the moment in terms of public perception is that you get these big headlines in the newspapers that you know bills have gone up another hundred pounds and all the energy suppliers say it's not because of their costs it's because of the government tax and in, in, on uh on uh, incentives for this renewable technology. But I think to to a certain extent, we should actually be proud of what we managed to achieve with these these incentives on renewable energy. We've managed to take a a fledgling industry 10 years ago that really wasn't cost competitive to a point now where we have technology that can trade energy on the open market with traditional sources of of energy. So uh, yes, there's been a cost to it, but I think overall there's been a, a public benefit. And going forward, the future projects, whether it's onshore wind, solar, to a certain extent offshore wind, offshore wind has a bit more time before it's going to be cost competitive. But certainly with onshore wind, it's now cost competitive with traditional fossil fuels. Mr. Ross, you're not uh,
0: backwards at coming forwards on these matters. What's your view on renewable energy?
2: I think there's always been the difficulty that we've, certainly people in my generation, you've grown up with a fairly plentiful energy supply that was pretty cheap. The difficulty we have now is people don't want to recognise the fact that fossil fuels are not going to be the future, and we need new things. And we have to wake up to the reality, it's going to cost more. We've been living in an artificial world, where just because there was loads and loads of oil being produced everywhere, we can do things quite cheaply, not necessarily correctly. And if we look at it from an environmental point of view, and we've spent a fair amount of time in the past working in the environmental lobbies and things like that. The fact is, we've got to wake up to this. The world can no longer just keep consuming. Gosh, I don't want to get all political and everything else. But (laughs) it's difficult not to. But but it it is difficult not to because the fact of the matter is we do have to wake up to the fact that you can't just keep raping the planet for everything and assume that you can walk into your supermarket and everything will just be sitting there. Hmm. Um, And maybe the things that have happened in the past six months politically are just another symbol of the fact that people are saying, actually, we need to wake up to a different world that we live in.
0: I don't want Donald Trump to become the... Um, I never mentioned him. No, 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 no. no. I'm thinking about our, our last wonderful podcast with Greta. Uh, and I certainly don't want him to become central to this. I think it's just a timing issue. Yeah. And the fact that you know his views are, are, are widely known. And some of the stuff as we speak is backfiring on him, you know, spectacularly. But he's still coming back and pushing through. Um, with his views on global warming, of which I understand he denies completely, um, where does that leave us? You know, you know with, uh, you know, I mean, not everybody in America is going to think that, of course, but yeah. he is the mouthpiece at the moment, and uh, he seems to be having some persuasion. Mm-hmm. Is, is that going to take your campaign back a couple of years? Um, or or what, what, what,
1: what battles are we going to be fighting on this? You know, I think it'd be a great disappointment if, uh, if the U.S. decides to leave the Paris Agreement. Um, but I don't think it'll stop things. I think just the power will shift to other countries in the world. I think China will take a leadership um, hopefully Europe will, will take a, a leadership in this, and certainly India as well. So I think there'll be uh, just a shift in the, the the leaders, I guess, that are going to uh, push forward this, this uh, more sustainable agenda. Um, what's interesting at the moment is that although the, the Republicans that are in power in the U.S. are denying uh, climate change is happening and are pushing back on Obama's climate change policy, there are some kind of stalwart Republicans that are actually saying, well, maybe, maybe we should consider implementing kind of a, a Republican policy, which would be a kind of capitalist approach to climate change and implement a carbon tax, which if the U.S. manages to take that forward would be, uh, would be a dramatic change to the landscape. And it would start saying, well, if, it, if uh, you consume a certain amount of CO2 to produce a certain product or service, then that's going to that, that cost in the environment is going to be attached to that product. And what they're proposing is that uh, this tax will then be reinvested into social activities within the U.S. Okay. And if they, if, if uh, producers have to export a product, they would rebate the American producers so that they can still be competitive uh, on an international market. So I think this is quite a nice solution. And it'd be uh, great if uh, they managed to convince Donald Trump and his uh, his administration to take that forward. Time will tell.
2: Yeah, but I think we've also got to look at this this fake news. And I know we touched on that last time. Um, the, the fact that Donald Trump just tweets stuff out, I think there is major scientific evidence that has to be looked at. And just because one guy is saying this isn't real, it's all made up, um, I've no doubt there are people throughout the world who say, yeah, he's absolutely right. But I think everyone else has got to wake up to the fact and say, no. there's, there's, We've gone past the point of, you know, is there an issue or not? There is. We recognise that. There are too many things happening now that, that you can't just walk away and say it's China making it up. So I think the, the Trump thing... and. Uh, It was interesting, I think it was the the chief exec of Apple stood up and said, we've actually got to really bang this fake news thing on the head because Mm -hmm. it's becoming damaging globally because nobody seems to know what's actually going on. And, you know, strains of 1984. We're Uh, we're all running around in a world now where it's all made up and we don't know what to do. I have this vision of of Trump late at night because that's when he's (laughs) tweeting and he's had a couple of bevies.
0: <laughs> you know when you, you know when you do that, when you want to hook you, somebody's hacked you off. And, uh, not that I, I, I don't abuse people by it, but you know, he's had a couple of drinks, he's phoning them, he's sending it out.
2: In in in, la- in the previous episode, we had to apologise to <laughs> Donald Trump just in case he was listening. And again, Gary is speaking purely for himself and for no one else in the <laughs> room. You might
0: be, you might be, you might not. You know, the, great imagery, you, we'll though. Give, him, <laughs>
1: give him the benefit of the doubt.
2: Uh,
0: uh, but I also did counter last last time by saying he might end up being the best thing since sliced bread, and I still stand by that.
1: Because we don't know, the jury's still out. And I think that's why most people—not most people, but a, a, a large proportion of the U.S. population—decided to vote for them. They wanted something to change. They wanted someone to change things, and uh, change is what they're getting. <laughs> yeah. so. I, I'm
2: not entirely convinced they'll be the best thing since sliced bread. I'd have to uh, say. Jury's still out. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Even with the jury out, I, <laughs> I, I can't see this going
0: well. Which which countries excel in in renewable energy? I mean, are we on the
1: list? I think so. Yeah, I think. Uh, the, the UK was on the list. I think that's changed now. Scotland's on the list. I think they, they've got a very progressive energy policy. Uh, Denmark has really kind of been one of the pioneers in, in renewable energy, and they made that decision back in the late 1970s with, with the oil crisis. And they said that they were going to pursue renewable energy, and wind energy in particular. And the government incentivized and promoted and pushed local businesses to develop uh, wind turbine technology. And as a result, they became the world leaders in this technology. And uh, they power, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's, it's, it's around 40 to 50% of their total energy comes from wind. But they've got a, an advantage that they have a nice interconnector with Norway, and Norway has lots of uh, hydropower stations, and they have machines that can pump water back up the hill. So whenever there's excess wind power that can't be consumed within Denmark, that power gets sold to Norway, and they use it to pump water up a hill. And then, when the wind's not blowing, they buy power back from Norway, and that water is released from the hill to turn hydro.
2: Joined so, up yeah. thinking, goodness it's me, great, that makes sense. It?
1: That? <laughs> Hello, politicians. <laughs> it's a very collaborative process, isn't it? And I think that's quite, what's quite nice about the European uh, power network is that you have multiple time zones as well across uh, Europe, where we have our peak time here between five and seven p.m. when everyone's getting home from work and they switch on the kettles and, and, and cook dinner and everything. But uh, in, in Europe, if you're well, if you're interconnected you can share power generation across different times. So it doesn't mean you have to build power generation just for your own peak in your own country, but you could potentially sh- share Germany's power generation when they've passed their peak period. So there's a lot yeah, of talk We, we, we really possibly connected. could
2: have done a while ago, but I don't. Yeah, that's, like, that's a short-scale now. Exactly. window we've got now, I'm afraid. <laughs> but why weren't we having this conversation last year? Mm. Very Absolutely. true. It's very Absolutely. true.
0: Um, what are the what are the benefits to business? So countries that do it particularly well. Is there a correlation between between businesses doing really well and businesses not in terms of maybe savings to the bottom line, you know, lower energy bills? And, you know, how how can businesses benefit from renewable energy apart from the obvious of being, you know, of, of building the turbines? But but if you're a one man, two man SME, whatever it happens to be, how can you benefit? What will it do for my business?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people have been, uh, from a business perspective, have been kind of critical of renewable energy because of the cost increase in in, in energy, I guess. And if you're a company that requires a lot of energy for your processes to produce your products or services, then your costs will will go up. But now the technology has reached a point where it is cost effective. Um, If you are a small company, you might consider putting up solar panels or maybe you'll invest in actually commercial wind wind energy projects. Well, interesting.
0: Um, We are broadcasting from Dundee. Uh, and there's a there's a Michelin factory, the tyre people, and they've got turbines on, on their own land, which I assume powers their factory.
1: And the, the advantage of putting a, a small generator on, on your site is that you can use that electricity locally and you don't have to buy electricity from the grid. So your cost of using that electricity locally is less than buying it from the grid. So if you buy it from... any of the energy companies, it might cost you 14 pence per per unit. But if you're buying it from your own wind turbine, the economics of that project might only work out at 8 pence per kilowatt hour or per unit. So there's certainly advantages in terms of kind of co-locating energy generation on-site and industrial processes. I
2: think for business, it's the changing world presents the greatest opportunity. I I can't see an awful lot of SMEs that are running around saying, well, we'll stick up our own wind turbine or we'll do this, because it's just not very feasible. But where the interest does come is the fact that we're changing the technology. And whereas the oil industry drove technology and, and drove change in so many different areas from you know the 1920s through to the 1980s, now what we're seeing is a whole new breed of companies that are being set up, a whole new industry that's coming around saying, we can do this. And it's the clever people. It's the people like Kyle who come coming up with new ideas. You know, It's that generation that see this as an opportunity. In all fairness, Gary, I don't think it's our generation that are caught on to it. We're kind of sitting there saying, well, as long as the lights are on the telly works, I'm kind of okay. <laughs> but it's people who are sitting down and saying we can do new things. And I saw an article recently where um, someone was saying that in 10 years' time, the world's biggest company will be a company that hasn't actually even been started yet. And it will be based on these new technologies, and it will be doing new things. And we touched on it, I think, when we were talking to Greta. But the American car industry, they think, will just go because ten years from now the biggest world's the world's biggest car manufacturer is likely to be someone like Amazon or Apple or Google, because they're going to produce technology that is completely alien to where we are today, but people are going to buy it and say, that's what I want. North of
0: here, geographically is Aberdeen, which has relied on the energy sector for years and years and years. It is in a slump currently. It, could this be a lifesaver for a city like Aberdeen, a project, a renewable energy project or renewable, renewable energy industry? Could, could, it, could it transform uh, their, um,
1: um, their fortunes currently? Per, personally, I, I think it could, yeah. And I think certainly the Scottish government would like to see that happen, where you have a fantastic wealth of expertise in Aberdeen in, in offshore engineering. And as we start moving wind energy offshore, this expertise is going to be invaluable. So those skills are transferable? So skills that are it. there at the moment are transferable it. to
0: this, right, okay.
2: Yeah. But I think the, there's there's a challenge there. Um, we did some consultants who work up in Aberdeen last year. What we found was professional services are withdrawing. They were up there because... And controversially, I think this is probably going to be accepted by some. Um, Aberdeen, you didn't even need to be very good at what you were doing to actually make a lot of money in Aberdeen for a number of years. Oh, John. Well, it's personal opinion, there we are. <laughs> um, now, what you've got is a difficult time. The professional services firms that were charging, you know, five, six hundred pounds an hour to work with people have said that money's not there and they've left. And we worked with, with we were talking to one organization, they had relocated 80 staff because they said there was no longer the money to support what they were doing in Aberdeen and they were shutting down offices. So what you're going to see is the, um, the businesses that were servicing a lot of the specialist needs have already gone elsewhere. They've redeployed their staff in different parts of the world where that skill is now needed. Um, and I'm not convinced Aberdeen is going to bounce back from this in such a positive way, and I don't think... Ever. Um, there's going to have to be an enormous amount of work goes into this um, because there's expectation in Aberdeen house prices are you know, ridiculously high compared to everyone else. There's a lot of people there who've got a lot invested in it um, and are going to slip into negative equity on all sorts of things and can't afford to move out. And, and I think it's going to be a difficult time for Aberdeen. I think it's a really difficult thing for the government to look at because for a long time, Aberdeen was an artificial place in Scotland. Um, It was near London prices for everything because there was just money being pumped out of the ground. And today that money isn't being pumped out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people may get stuck there. And and who knows what, what, because I want to come on to the rowing. (laughs) <laughs> we've got to do the rowing.
1: Yeah, we have to. We've got we, to do the rowing. We've got to do, no, do the rowing. Pretty no, <laughs> sure we're doing that. <laughs> you know,
0: I, I refer back to that. We, you know, we we produce this podcast in Dundee, albeit it, it goes out worldwide. Um, but but Dundee seems to be putting a lot of faith in the renewable energy sector to contribute to uh, its turn um, because. You know, we talk very positively. Everybody talk. Well, most people talk very positively about where Dundee and where where it's going at the moment. But re- renewable energy could could contribute to the success of the city in the future. So we might even have a a,
2: a, a reversal. So where, where it's this a- 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 is this idea of young people? The thing the thing that's impressive about Dundee is it's got a lot of young, clever people who are coming here. I think it started with the games industry, the computer games. But actually, people now view Dundee as a place to come to to be creative. And I think that's what we need as a country. Sorry, Kyle. I was doing the interview's worst thing. I was asking the
0: question and answering answering it while while looking at you. Uh, so I'll, I'll, just <laughs> I'll just go back to the answer. Anyway, I'll just
1: go So, what, what are your thoughts on on the Dundee issue? And then we'll go on to rowing. Yeah, and I think um, you know, for for a lot of cities, they're looking to become kind of a, a renewable energy capital, or, or 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 capture some of this this future uh, uh, opportunity. Um, I think one thing that Scotland's been very good at is creating service-based businesses um, to help developers find the right sites for renewable energy, develop them, uh, deal with the legal aspects, the financing and the, the technical design. But we haven't been very good at is actually capturing some of the manufacturing market, and that so far has kind of been lost to other European countries and, and, uh, and over, over, over overseas. So what would be nice to see is uh, maybe some strategic thinking from the government and local cities to uh, start thinking about how can we start creating new companies or transforming existing companies to produce the products required to meet this, uh, this low carbon future? Uh, later this year, we're recording, it's February by the way, and, uh,
0: but later this year in December, you and three others, friends, colleagues, um, uh, are taking part in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, there's lots of questions there. So, what is the concept?
1: Yep. Apart so, from rowing. Apart from rowing. Yep. Yeah. So this uh, this this event uh, now takes place uh, every year now actually, and it's uh, it's a rowing you could call it a, it's, it's a rowing challenge but some people are making a bit more of a race now. It's starting to kind of develop into a, into a bit of a sport. Um, the race starts in in La in the Canary Islands, just off the northwest coast of Africa, and it goes three thousand miles across the Atlantic and finishes in in Antigua. And you have a, a mix of different types of boats, uh, kind of competing or sharing the experience amongst amongst each other. From uh, some some really crazy people who do it solo, to uh, to pairs and to, to team to fours. Um, and we're going to be doing it as a as a four-man team, where two of us are based here in the in in the UK and, and two of us are, are based in in the US. Yeah. So tell me about tell me about the boat. Is it is it built? Is it good to go? Is it being specially built? Yeah. So we as part of our kind of. Uh, carbon neutral agenda. We decided to get a used boat that's already been across previously, and we picked that up last summer. Did it win? So, no, unfortunately it didn't. Oh, no, right. no, no, no. So we're hoping to change the fortunes of this boat. Yes. Okay. okay. Good. Nice turnaround. So, exactly. uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a nice uh, carbon fiber boat. So it's quite quite lightweight. Uh, it's got two cabins, one in the in in the forward, one in the back, and uh, two rowing positions. And some, when you first, you know, th- think of rowing, you, you think of these kind of old wooden rowing boats with, you know, not many much sophisticated technology on it. But we actually have some quite nice technology on it that kind of makes the crossing a bit safer in terms of the navigation equipment and the satellite phones and the battery system and the solar panels and the fuel cell. So there's a lot of equipment on it that uh, enables us to, to make this a, a safe crossing. And...
0: Stupid question number two might be number three or four. I don't know. I have been counting. Um, how do you, domestically, how does it work? So, you, you obviously take turns in, in rowing, but what about sleeping patterns,
1: eating, going through the loo? How,
0: how does all that work?
1: Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, I think it's still open for debate, actually. No one's really kind of find, found the optimum uh, rowing regime, but at the moment, a lot of people uh, prefer the two hours on, two hours off. So, that's when you have uh, two people on the oars rowing for a two hour period. And at the end of that period, you give a knock on the cabin, wake up your teammates who are sleeping. Uh, you get your, your meal prepared. You eat your meal. You give a quick wash. And then you go to bed for two hours. And then you wait for the, the knock from your teammates to get back up again and, and do it do it again. OK. So there is a covered cabin where you can have, take shelter.
0: And you know. And in terms of the meals, is it going to be like NASA meals that you just warm up? You
1: open them and they warm up automatically? Or That's or, it, exactly. Is yeah, that's is it really? It, yes, it's uh, freeze-dried food all the way, so it'll be uh, wow. probably... Uh, five or six of these freeze-dried packets a day. So we're, we're trying to aim to get somewhere between six thousand, eight thousand calories uh, on on, okay. on on board each day. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Why on earth
2: did you choose to do
1: this? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Don't it's, talk him out of it. Yeah. It's it's a good question, and you know, it's it's funny by this point in time we should have a straightforward answer to that, but uh, it's 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 a difficult one to to answer. And there's probably kind of multiple layers to it, really. And I think you know what one. One reason would be well, we want to uh, kind of start the discussion and raise awareness about sustainable lifestyle choices, and, and also promote our our charity, the World Land Trust, that's doing fantastic work overseas in protecting rich, biodiverse uh, areas of rainforest. Um, but then you'd also look at think about you know why does anyone take on a challenge, whether it's uh, a marathon or a ten k or a five k, or why does someone climb a mountain? And there's something probably, I don't know, I don't know if, if spiritual is the right word, but something kind of uh, it kind of helps build up your, your 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 personal capabilities, I guess, by taking on a challenge. You kind of come out as a slightly changed person at the end of it, and you you want to put yourself through that to kind of maybe test yourself to a certain extent and to learn more about yourself, about your um, the personal relationships that you develop in, in during this challenge and the environment around you that you that you experience during the challenge. I, I know the, the thing, thing is
2: of... running a five k, you haven't got a shark's going to eat you <laughs> if it goes wrong or yeah. you fall over. And um, this is you know. The the biggest thing I've ever rode across was Craigton Park, and that was hard enough. Um, Three thousand miles. Have you any concept of how
1: big that is? I it's mean, I know you come from America, ways. but in <laughs> <on> a plane. <laughs> so I know it's 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 uh, for for me actually it's, it's it's quite a personal thing. It's something I've wanted to do for quite a long time. I first heard about this uh, this event when I was about fourteen years old. I don't know if you've ever watched Transworld Sport on a, on a Saturday morning. I don't know if it's still on anymore, but it used to be on at 7 o'clock in the morning. No, my, my, mine was World of uh, Sport Wrestling at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's about as, <laughs> about as sporty as I was.
2: <laughs> Transworld Sport was what I ended up watching at like 3 in the morning when the children were up crying and it was my turn <laughs> to and
1: feed them. So yeah, I do remember watching it and they did have weird things Yeah, it's always, always a quirky sports yeah. and stuff. And it's always been the quirky sports that kind of interested me. I've never really kind of been that big of a, a football fan or a rugby fan or anything like that. And uh, just every, ever since I saw it on Transworld Sport, I think that's one of these things I'd like to do one of these days. It just kind of captured my imagination for some reason. I think it's one of these kind of ultimate adventures where you are really reliant upon yourself and your teammates and the equipment you, you, you have and that you're really alone in the middle of the Atlantic. There's nothing, no one else there to help you apart from your own experience and, and uh, reliance on your teammates and making sure you know your equipment. And, and uh, are you experienced rower? Nope. Oh, good. gets better. Never rowed. <laughs> <laughs> never rowed. Never, <laughs> never <rode. laughs> Well, I've I've rowed a little little wooden rowing boats, I guess. Yeah, so, but might, but nothing nothing quite like this. <laughs> so it's a British American team. That's right. Yeah. Uh, two Brits, two Americans. Two Brits, two Americans, and a semi. Yeah, I guess I'm a semi American
0: uh, okay. Brit yeah. <laughs> So how do you how do you how do you get together to practice? Because you've got what
1: uh, ten months. Yeah, so that's uh, that's another challenge on top of it, especially since we're trying to limit our, our travel emissions, uh, CO2 emissions. So we, we've got one two-week training period this June when uh, Brian and Phil who are based in Washington, D.C. They're going to come out and we're going to do sea trials on the boat and make sure that all our equipment's functioning correctly. We'll get used to our, our, uh, our rowing patterns. We'll run through a bunch of drills that we think might happen when, when we're rowing across and make sure that we're, we're safe and competent in doing these drills. Um, in terms of our own kind of regular personal training, it's just something that we check up on each other once a week on a Sunday. We have our Sunday Skype call at 8 p.m. GMT. So uh, every week we chat for about an hour and just kind of update ourselves on the campaign and contacts we've made with companies and um, kind of promotional activities that we're working on. And then also our, our training as well, just kind of just have a general uh, chat about, you know, any niggles we're, we're experiencing or any, uh, any challenges we're experiencing with, uh, with the training. And, and you, you I mean, jo- joking aside, and because it's
0: a very serious, very serious uh, event that you're taking part in, you as a, as a businessman and, and owning the company, co owning the company, uh, have been seriously impressed by this project.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we had the conversation when we met. Uh, over the lunch, and um, we've stepped up and said, "Yep, yeah, we're, we're going to put some money into it, just because I think it's it's just phenomenal what you're doing." I, mean, I, I, I love the sustainability angle, but it's the, it's the whole concept of of this challenge of rowing the Atlantic, and I'm just still stunned that you're not a rower. <laughs> I mean, and it, it's three thousand miles. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just want to point that out. I mean, it's, it's just it's ways, it's yeah. staggering it's that ways, you're now. going to do this. I, 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 sort of thought you'd oh yeah i'm an experienced rower and i've you know, i've done the channel 15 times and i do this and we're we're a hardened team you're just kind of four amateurs are saying let's just row the atlantic
1: uh. that's
2: it exactly that's, you know, I, I tell you for yeah. a business that's awesome mm-hmm. T- to look at that i meet business people who say oh, i've got a really big challenge and i've got a vat return to do and it's you're going to row the atlantic in a little plastic boat
1: how long does it take uh, it depends. Depends how hard we row, <laughs> but usually it takes somewhere between uh, 40 and 60 days to do the, the whole crossing. Two months. Yeah. But to p- pick up on what, what you said about you must really like the, the, these guys. Uh, they're good guys. We've known we've known each other for for and a while, you and I, I think have a very it's, understanding wife. Yes, that's been a, a big part of it. So, but two of us are married. So not not to each other, but separate, separate wives. <laughs> uh, so our wives have been very understanding. Yeah, very understanding. So uh, have you
2: ever spent like two months in a shed with someone? a lot sort of like warm-up. That's going to be one of the challenges, I think, with this, yeah. You're yeah. one of his sponsors. Yeah. Are you trying to put him off? No,
1: I'm not <laughs> going to put him off. I'm just... I'm just it's I, a reality I, I'm, check here, yeah.
2: It is interesting. <laughs> I spoke recently at an event, and um, you know, we, we were talking about resilience and business and things like this. And I just think we need to get Kyle running around there after you've done it. Because mm. people need to wake up to some real challenges. Yeah. And, and often we get very soft on things, and you look at things... That are you know oh it's really critical I do this you know and on a scale of you know zero is you've just woken up and ten is you're gonna die they're, they're operating about a number three when I mean, you're seriously operating in the sort of upper levels of eight nine and potentially ten
1: yeah I think it's you know we might not all have the in you know, the team, the experience in terms of rowing. But we, I think we each kind of bring something different to the, the, the rowing team. So, I mean, James, who's based down in London, he, he's an experienced rower. He used to row for the NB University team. So he provides us with some tips and kind of gives us little videos of him rowing and saying, okay, make sure that your technique is this way. Um, James is also an experienced sailor, so we've got a good sailor on board. Um, we've got Brian who's kind of worked in kind of security areas in the past so he's very methodical in kind of assessing the risks and making sure that we have uh, protocols in place for any eventuality so I think we all kind of bring something different to the team and together as long as we communicate amongst each other we can actually share these skills and make sure that we're we're ready for this this challenge. Okay um, and while while you're rowing
0: how will you stay in touch with uh, with people at home, with your loved ones? Will you be filming it? Will we, Will you be str- I mean, This sounds ridiculous. I don't know whether you can stream in the middle of the
1: the Atlantic. But how, you know, will we be able to view your progress? Yeah. So they, they've uh, we'll have a GPS tracker on us, so that will be on on the website, so you can see us uh, track our progress. Um, we also have a, a satellite phone with us. So We'll be checking in once a day with. Uh, uh, with, with people back at home probably can, we'll just have one point of contact we'll share the information amongst uh, amongst our family and then every now and then we'll try and upload some pictures so we will have some internet connection uh connectivity in the atlantic so we'll try and get some some good probably look you, lo- you local can't the pictures, get internet but, yeah. connectivity walking down princess street in edinburgh how on earth do you get it in the middle <laughs> of the atlantic <laughs> Yeah, the technology is evolving. It's very expensive. So, I mean, you, you, the technology's there, but you have to pay for the service, and that, that's the expensive part. So, so uh,
0: I've got a website here. It's uh, carbonzero.org. So, that's carbon and zero is Z E R O W dot org. So that was a nice play in words. I thought it was very nice. <laughs> I thought it was very good. Uh, and uh, theworldlandtrust.org is, is your uh, chosen charity. That's right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, I have to say, it's been a fascinating half hour. Uh, just over actually and uh, I think that's the, the purpose of this is is meeting really interesting people who are doing very different things and uh, uh, can I uh, Kyle just wish you all the best and I will certainly be uh, tracking your progress with interest so uh, Kyle Smith thank you very much indeed John Ross see you next time thanks very much thanks for having me